We are kicking off a brand new series today called Sounds Familiar, uh, and I, we're going to be diving into uh, the, the section of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount for the next uh, couple of months, and I can't wait. So uh, if, if you're new here, if you've been coming the last couple of weeks, um, my name is Randy. I'm the campus pastor here. My wife uh, has the hair that would look like it was on fire on the stage. Her name's Hansi, and, uh, and we absolutely love it here, and our church launched uh, uh, this campus launched here uh, in October of last year. And so in many ways, there's so many parts of what we're doing that are just kind of getting off the ground. And so thanks so much for being here and uh, for, for coming back and sticking around the last couple of weeks and, uh, and, and being a part of what God is doing here. So uh, we have four kids. Uh, we have a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, uh, an 11-year-old, and a six-year-old. And so um, we just have a ball. So my daughter, Kaylee, is 18 and she's uh, in the back with the tech team. She's kind of pushing buttons and flipping toggles and pulling levers and making everything happen that happens. And, and so I actually recently found though an assignment that she did uh, when she was in third grade where she had to write a paragraph about our family. And at the time we just had our two older kids. So it was just her older brother and her. Uh, and, and this is what she wrote. I, I just thought it was, wanted to share it with you because it was just so powerful and beautiful. She wrote this um, and, and when she was in third grade, she said, I have four people in my family. One of them is Jaron, that's her brother. Um, he is always very happy and very funny, which is both of those things are true. She said, being, he's being Mr. Joker, which is the key to me, making me laugh. Another person in my family is my mom. She sacrifices her free time for me and for Jaron every day. She washes my clothes, makes breakfast, lunch, and dinner, washes my sheets and my comforter, gives me a hug and a kiss every day because she loves me. The last person in my family is dad. My dad doesn't do much. <clears throat> He lays on the couch with his computer, iPhone, and iPad. He is very funny though. He laughs a lot. One night we were having family night and he laughed so hard that his face turned beet red and he almost died. Oh no, he almost, sorry, I read it wrong. He, he cried. I did almost die. No, uh, he, he's also very sleepy and I mean sleepy. He sleeps in every single morning and doesn't get up till at least 7.30, but I do love my family very, 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 very much. So the first thing you need to know about my daughter Kaylee is she's a pathological liar. Um, and everything she said about me is not true, um, except for the fact that I do turn beet red when I laugh really hard. Oh, and um, I am very funny. You will, you will pick up on that. I mean, uh, I do love to sleep and I do spend a lot of time on screens. And so, okay, most of what she said is actually true. Uh, I do do some stuff. I don't sleep in every day and you know, like I take out the garbage occasionally and, you know, help around the house and do dishes sometimes. Uh, but I love being a dad. And one of my favorite things in raising kids is watching the dynamics between them and kind of listening to the conversations that they have and just how similar that those conversations are in some ways to the ones that I had with my siblings growing up. Uh, a few days ago, I sent our youngest son, Kelton, who's six, <clears throat> to go tell his older brother, Kai, that he needed to clean up uh, the playroom and take a bath. And so he went into the playroom and uh, Kai was listening to music and he didn't have his hearing aid on. He's only, uh, he's only got one ear. And so um, I was just kind of listening from the other room and I heard Kelton go, Kai, 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 Kai. And Kai was like, what, dude, what? Why are you yelling? He's like, you need to clean up and take a bath with me. And Kai said something, that Jaron and Kaylee said to each other a million times when they were little in these moments, something that me and my brothers said to each other, something that you probably said to your siblings or a friend growing up, something that really every kid has said to another kid when they've been told something 
that they have to do something that they don't want to do or something was said that they don't want to hear or may not believe. Kelton said, Kai, you need to clean up and take a bath. And Kai said, says who? Says who? You ever said that to somebody before? Ever heard your kids say that to each other when one of them's telling them, hey, you need to do this? Says who, right? It's like saying, first of all, why do I need to do that? By whose authority are you telling me to do this? Because you're certainly not the boss of me. So this instruction better be coming from someone a little bit higher up on the food chain than just you. Because if it's just you telling me I need to clean up and take a bath, I think I'll just keep playing and listening to music. Because when it comes to instructions, we often consider the source before we actually listen to the substance of what's being said, right? Especially when we kind of hear like, oh yeah, I don't really want to do that unless it's somebody that I know can make me do that and then I'll kind of pay attention, right? Because we want to know why should I listen to you about this right now? Says who? Why do I have to do that? But it's not just kids that say it, right? Like I actually see people say it a lot in our culture when they're questioning whether or not things, you know, whether or not, you know, something is real or rings true or people, you know, in the rare instant that, that people are arguing online these days, um, someone will state their opinion or make a claim or cite a statistic. And the immediate response is almost always says who, where do you get your information? What? How do you know that? Who's your source? Who or what is backing up that claim? What, where's the expert opinion? Because honestly, I mean, you think about it, like it's kind of a natural response because if you're broke, I don't want your investment advice. If you're skinny, I'm probably not gonna go to you for restaurant recommendations. I'm just not. And, and my kids don't want fashion advice from me because in their eyes, it's been a few decades since I approached anything within a million miles of being cool. And it's not bad that we have that inclination to go like, says, I don't know, I'm not really buying this, right? It's not bad that we do this because life and experience and common sense shows that not every viewpoint is equally viable, right? Not everything is equal. In fact, if we give every single source in our lives the same weight, the same level of authority, that's a, that's a great way to live confused, to be anxious, to, to not even really know how to live or what to do or where to go. When everybody, when every voice matters, then no voice matters, right? So to, today, as I said a, a little bit ago, we're actually beginning this really big series of conversations on one of the most important sections in all of scripture. And it's a, collections of, a collection of teachings from Jesus that's been given the label of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this massive sweeping sort of manifesto from Jesus on life about what it means to be human and how we relate to God and what God is wanting from us. And chances are, like the millions of people, you know, the last couple of thousands, last couple thousand years, you're probably familiar with at least some of what he said in this giant section of scripture that we're gonna be talking about. Because he taught on things like anger and judging other people, but also forgiveness and love and generosity. But what he said was so groundbreaking and so unexpected, so powerful and beautiful and challenging that it stopped people who were listening. It stopped the audience in their tracks and it caused them to do what many of us would do whenever he was teaching. And this is, so check this out in Matthew chapter 21. This is just an example. 
verse 23. It says, when Jesus began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Who gave you the right? So Jesus begins teaching and the spiritual and religious leaders come up and they're like, oh yeah? Says who? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to say and do this stuff? Who died and made you king? Who or what gives you the right to teach that way, to say those things when our tradition says this? Says who? How? Why should we listen to you? Why do you get to do that? Why do you get to say that? And I think this is kind of a tension that many of us can relate to because a conversation about God gets a lot of traction in the world. No, no matter where you were born or where you're at, and, and yes, you know, it, everybody defines God differently, but um, even today, statistically in the U.S., um, around 70% of people in our country say that they believe in God. And if you zoom out a little bit to worldwide, that number is still hovering about 85%. So about 85% of 7 billion people in the world say that they believe in a God. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato, he actually used this phrase. He, he didn't believe and worship the God that, uh, of the scriptures, the God that we're talking about today, but, but he believed that there was a God, there was a creator, there was a designer. And, and he used this phrase where he would look at the world and he said, it's, it's the perfect order of things. It's the perfect invisible pattern of things in the world that describes or is proof of the existence of God. A while back, we, uh, we took a trip to Alaska one summer and if you've never been to Alaska, you should go to Alaska. It's amazing. And, and just don't go in the wintertime. Go in the summertime. Uh, you won't see much in the winter. But it's incredible. And, and honestly, words and pictures really don't do it justice. It's so big and it's so massive and so breathtaking everywhere you look. And so one day we were sailing up this fjord to, to go see a glacier and it was the middle of summertime, but you get near a glacier and it gets cold really fast. And so everybody's out like bundled up and, and, and the, as we're going up this fjord, there's mountains, just these towering mountains on both sides and there's icebergs floating by, which honestly, if you're on a cruise ship and there's icebergs floating by, it's a little unnerving, right? Like I, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, I may have yelled iceberg right ahead like 18 times uh, just just to make myself feel better and make sure people knew. And, you know, but there were eagles soaring all over. It was, it was absolutely stunning. It's, and, and it's hard to describe, but like the, the, like the grandeur of it all is just so intense. It's all so big and majestic and beautiful. And, and it sounds really, really silly, but I don't know how else to say it, but there were times where you almost have to look away because it's just, too much to take in the size and the scope and the beauty of it. And it's just all so overwhelming. And I think most of us have had moments like that in some place or another with creation, whether it's sitting and watching a sunset or standing on the shore of the ocean and watching the waves just roll in and just contemplating just the size and scope of the world, right? Or looking up, Last year we were in uh, we were in Big Sky, Montana, and it lived up to the, its name. That nighttime, like the sky is just so massive, it just feels like you're like falling up. We've all had those kinds of experiences, and it's easy in those moments to kind of to look and to think, "Yeah, I, I think there's a God here." But somehow, the conversation changes; it shifts. It's different when it comes to Jesus. 
See, if you're here and you've ever had resistance to trusting Jesus with your life, you are not alone. In fact, you're in really, really good company. And, and maybe, maybe you're in that place or maybe that's been your experience for most of your life where you're okay with the God part. Yeah, I believe in God. You're just not sure about Jesus. If you've ever read things he said or did, or you heard someone like me talk about him, or, or maybe you had you know, a reaction like the spiritual leaders in the story that I read a second ago, where you just thought like, says who? Like, that sounds really good, and, but I, I just don't know if I can, like, are you really the son of God? I, I don't know. Are you really who, is he really God? I, I don't know. And if you've ever experienced that, then this is the conversation for you. And if, if you're somebody who you're like, man, I, I'm all in, like God, Jesus, I'm a, this is actually a great conversation for you to be kind of reminded of who Jesus is and, and, and who he was and what he said as we get into this story. See, I, I think before we begin kind of unwrapping and diving in to this section, this giant section of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount the next eight or nine weeks. I think it's important for us to stop and wrestle with who the person is that's actually giving the sermon to begin with. And why what he's saying to us in this sermon or really in any of the other teachings in the New Testament that were captured by his followers, why any of that even matters to us at all, why we should listen to it at all. Why it should move beyond just like, oh, that was a great suggestion or that was good moral help or, or that was you know, helpful for my life. And so to attempt to kind of answer this question, to attempt to kind of speak into who Jesus was, I, I want you to actually see what happens before and right after the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you get this, it'll change everything about how you read the rest of what he says. And so it all begins in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, verse one, verse one and two, it says this. It says, one day, um, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Now on the surface, that's just pretty straightforward, pretty benign, but, but there's actually a lot going on here that we don't see because we're not first century Jews. And so one of the things we say in our Discover class, and it's actually coming up next month, if you've never been to Discover, go to Discover. It's be super helpful, not only in, uh, in getting connected to our church, but in helping you know, move down the road in your faith. But one of the things we talk about in Discover is that when it comes to understanding the scriptures is you have to know what it meant to them then before you can actually know what it means to you now. And the word for that, the simple word for that is just understanding the context. And so here's a little backstory or context for what's happening here. So Jesus was a rabbi, he was a Jewish rabbi, and a rabbi's job was to take the Jewish scriptures or what they called the law and the prophets or the Torah, and he would interpret and contextualize and, and apply them to everyday life. And the goal was to get as close as possible what God originally intended when he first spoke, which which is a really good goal, right? That, that's a really important thing because if there is a God and if he's speaking through the scriptures, it, it might be kind of important for us to know what he's saying, for us to understand his intentions, for us to actually be able to know what he intended when he said those things. The problem was is that the rabbis, especially in the first century, they didn't always agree. In fact, each, ra each rabbi had their own set of interpretations and explanations and applications of what God meant in the law and the prophets. So for us, that would be the Old Testament. But it didn't matter what their version looked like. They all had one thing in common. And that was the goal wasn't just to know what it said. 
The goal was to actually do it, to live it out. It, it wasn't just belief that mattered. It was the behaviors that backed it up, which really is still true for us today. Because nobody really, nobody really cares what you believe. We care how, like, what do you do? How do you behave? How do you live? In fact, the proof that what you believe is actually worth listening to is how you behave and live your life and the way that the life it produces in your family. So a rabbi's teachings were, weren't just a set of beliefs to subscribe to. They were quite literally a way of life. So because of that, each rabbi's specific set of teachings were actually known as that rabbi's yoke. Because when a disciple would follow that rabbi, they were taking on his yoke, which meant they were agreeing to live their life by, what he, by his interpretations, his applications, his explanations of what God was saying to do. Now, I know that's off in the weeds a little bit, but I don't want you to miss this because it's gonna come back here in just a second. So Jesus sits down on a mountainside to teach and there's a huge crowd gathered around him, but they're not all in the same spiritual space. They're, the, the majority of them are just this giant crowd that's just sort of checking things out. And they had heard about this crazy new rabbi who had done some miracles and had some kind of different ideas about God and what it looked like to follow God. And so you have this really large, curious crowd, but you also have his core followers, his committed disciples. And they're sitting on a mountainside as Jesus is about to begin laying out for them all the stuff I mentioned a few, a few minutes ago about how to live and what it means to be human and who God is and what he expects and how we respond to him. And the fact that they were sitting on a mountainside means absolutely nothing to us other than we can imagine and be like, that's a really cool place to go to church. But for everybody in the audience that day that was sitting there, the whole scene for them would have immediately brought back all these images that, that, would, that were reminiscent of really what was the most important part of their history and their story and their belief system, which was God giving Moses all of those same things, how to live your life, what it means to be human, how to relate to one another, how to relate to God, what God expects. They would have immediately had these images of God giving all those same things to Moses, which just so happened to happen on a mountainside. And so in this moment, when Jesus calls all the crowds and the crowds that are following and he sits down to teach them, the energy and the tension and the expectations are palpable. Everybody's sitting up, leaning in, on the edge of their seats. And then Jesus starts teaching and he completely blows their minds and melts their faces off. And when he's done, this is their response. Matthew chapter seven, verse 28 and 29. Said when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority, which was quite unlike their teachers of the religious law. So in essence, they have this collective kind of says who moment, right? It wasn't with the attitude and the disdain of the says who that the religious leaders had a second ago, right? Which was a more of a how dare you. No, these people were blown away. They were just like, wait, 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 whoa, whoa. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Where, where, did, where did he get all that stuff from? How did he learn to teach like that? Because that wasn't just another sermon. Man, that was in a whole nother category. That was a whole nother level. That wasn't just, some, just another rehashed rabbi's yoke. That was a powerful, real, applicable, relatable, fresh, exciting, like just 
mind-blowing stuff. It was also challenging and uncomfortable and a little bit unnerving. See, some people taught by authority, but Jesus, it says that he taught what they were blown away with. He taught with authority. See, and there was a difference that everybody could see and hear and feel as he talked. Others were granted and given authority by the powers that be to go out and teach. And they had been through the schooling and they knew the right references and they knew how to navigate the scriptures. But Jesus was different. He just seemed to have it. He just seemed to have a depth and a substance that nobody had ever seen before. Nobody had ever heard before. Nobody had ever witnessed before. Other people talked about stuff that they had learned, but it was as, it was as, as when Jesus spoke, it was as if he was speaking about it firsthand, that, that he, he knew stuff that they didn't know, and it was, it was not something he learned some about where it was just flowing from who he was. Have you ever known somebody that um, reads something on the internet or watches like a documentary or a YouTube video, and then they act like they're an expert on that thing? Anybody ever known anybody? No. Anybody ever been guilty of doing that? Yeah, I'm 100%. I, I was recently, and by recently, I mean yesterday, I was in the car with my brother and we were driving down Linder and there's that um, nest on the side where the eagles are. And I just started spouting random eagle facts. Like I was an eagle expert and I don't know anything about eagles. And it just struck me what, complete phone. Like I was just faking it all. Like I didn't, I actually, and finally I admitted it. I'm like, I don't even know if any of that's true. I think it's true, but I don't know why I'm saying it. Like I'm an expert. I don't know anything about Eagles other than America. That's, that's what I know. That's all I know. So, but while they're listening to Jesus, like it's clear that Jesus isn't doing that. This isn't something he heard some from somebody else. This isn't some, some teaching he heard. This wasn't some schooling he got. This wasn't some other rabbi that he was kind of following. No, that there was something powerful and deep and real about what he was saying and who he was. Now, the other part that, that's kind of played into the electricity of this moment and, and this sermon was all the things that happened in the days leading up to it. So, the, the scripture we read and the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to get into, it all, it all begins in Matthew chapter 5. But, but if you just back up a couple chapters, look at what happened in Matthew chapter 3. So it says this, uh, verse 16, it says, After his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water, and the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. This would be a pretty incredible moment, right? And a voice from heaven said, and everybody could hear it. A voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. So in other words, he's not just another good moral teacher or prophet. No, Jesus's insight, Jesus's approval, his authority is coming directly from God. And right after this moment where he comes up out of the water and all of these people see like this incredible thing descending from heaven and they hear this voice and there's huge crowds around and they're like, what? I mean, can you imagine? It's like, dude, did you just hear that? Like, that was crazy. Last week we were traveling home uh, from Hawaii and we had a stopover in, uh, you guys should feel really bad for us. We went to Hawaii and I can feel your compassion. I can feel it from here. We had a stopover in Oakland and a layover there. And while we were there, um, a, a, an earthquake, like just, 
And it wasn't one of those ones that was like, whoa, it's an earthquake. No, it sounded like somebody drove a plane into the terminal. It was like, kabam! And it was like, whoa. whoa. But everybody like turned around like, dude, did you feel that? Like, did I just, was I drinking too much? Did you, okay, yeah, that we just had that, right? See, and, and that, that kind of experience, when Jesus comes up out of the water, people are like blown away. And then Jesus then immediately goes out into the desert, is tempted by, faces down the evil one. And when he gets back, the guy who had baptized him, John the Baptist, um, is arrested. And so Jesus begins preaching and calling out disciples to follow him. And everywhere he goes, he's doing miracles and people are healed of, of sicknesses and diseases and demon possession and people being paralyzed or no longer paralyzed. And, and so the buzz is spreading like wildfire from here, from all the rumors and the stories of people who heard from a friend who heard from a friend. And then the people who were actually there and saw the dove and heard the voice and people who were healed and people whose cousin got healed. And so all of that is starting to spread. And so as far, as far away as like a hundred miles now, people are coming and walking to go find this new rabbi. And so people are claiming all kinds of crazy things about him, as you can imagine. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't try to tamp any of it down. He doesn't shut any of it down. In fact, he, he ends up making some of the same declarations about himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says this, my father, speaking of God, my father has entrusted everything to me. He's entrusted every, what a huge claim that God has entrusted everything and everyone to him. He's going, look, I, I don't know how else to say this. Like God is giving me, like I, I you wanna know where I have the power? Like God, is, God has entrusted everything to me. To which people would have been like, I mean, really, Jesus, everything and everyone, but he never walks it back. In fact, every time he has a chance to walk it back, he doubles down. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he's speaking to his disciples after the resurrection, and he says, listen, listen, he gathers them around. Hey, 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 fellas, listen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not a little bit, not some, not most, all authority in this life and in the life to come on this earth and in this reality, but also in heaven and ultimate reality. He's going, you, you say, says who? Says me, that's who. And the reason why it seems like I teach with authority is because I do. And the reason I do is because I have it all. So then the question becomes for us is why? Why would God give all of this special authority and this special insight and this special weight and these special abilities to this one person? And here's the answer, the big reveal in John chapter nine. Because there's another one of these really crazy says who moments where Jesus heals a guy that everybody had known that he was blind since birth. And it wasn't like he kind of gradually went blind as an adult and you know, Jesus pulled a ma magic trick out of it and somehow he was healed and it was kind of psychosomatic or whatever. No, this guy was born blind. His parents get called in and they're like, yep, he was born blind. He's never been able to see a day in his life. All the people that know him and Jesus heals him and he's walking around seeing. And it causes this huge scene and, and all these people are upset and some people are happy and some people don't and there's all this confusion. Who is this guy and how did he do it? And in John chapter 10, the people come to Jesus and they're like, look, Jesus, 
Man, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? They actually say this. How long are you going to keep us? How long are you going to hold out on us? If you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, if you're the anointed one, if you are the son of God, just tell us. And Jesus has a really, really simple answer in John chapter 10, verse 30. He just says this, the father, God, and I, we're one and the same. Is that that good enough for you? The father and I are one. Oh, so that's why this rabbi seems to have so much incredible insight on how God designed life to actually work and how he wants us to live because this rabbi is not just another rabbi. This rabbi is God in human form. He's the personification of truth and life and reality of, of itself. He's God slowing himself down to our pace. He's God lowering himself to our level and becoming one of us. Now, if, if that just seems really hard to swallow, I get that. It's okay. And, and as I said a second ago, you're in good company because the people who were there and they heard everything he said and they saw all the stuff he did, many of them struggled with it too. A few chapters later from what we just read in John 10 and John chapter 14, the very disciples, the very men that followed him around every day for three years, they still don't get it. And they're like sitting around talking to Jesus. It's just Jesus and the disciples. And they're like, okay, for reals this time, Jesus, no jokes. Like, no, all the stuff you've said has been amazing. Walking on water, when we saw you do that, that was really incredible. The way you brought that dead guy, Lazarus, back to life, I'm not gonna lie, you almost got me with that one. But come on, man, like just show us who God is so we can know for ourselves. And Jesus can't believe it. He's stunned. He's almost hurt. He's like incredulous. He can't, and he's like, look, I don't understand. So this is what Jesus says. He's like, I've been with you all this time. And after all that we've been through, after everything you've seen me do, after everything you've heard me say, you're gonna still act like you don't know who I am. You're gonna still sit there and ask me to show you who God is. And then he says something that's just absolutely, literally unbelievable. Something that even after everything that they had seen and heard would still have made the disciples kind of gasp. It still would have made them take kind of a step back. It still would have caught them off guard. And he says, Anyone who has seen me has seen God. And a few verses later, he says, because I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. I'm not just a way, I'm the only way. I don't just have and talk about truth, I am truth itself. I'm not just talking about the best way to live life, I am the source of life itself. And this is the crux of this whole conversation when it comes to Jesus. Because we're gonna get into some really practical stuff in the next couple of weeks. And even if you're just still struggling with all of this, like that's okay. Like you can reject all this, but I want you to know what you're rejecting. Because you can get into the practical stuff and it'll still be helpful even if you don't think Jesus is the son of God. You can still take that stuff and begin to live it out. And you don't have to even tell anybody that you got it from the Bible or that Jesus said it. And it will actually make a difference and begin changing your life. But I want you to know before we even get there, who it is that's actually saying this stuff. Because no matter what religion or belief system you study, 
There's this universal sense in the human spirit that to find God is to find life. Whether it's in Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Catholicism or the world religion that's known as Christianity. They all may approach God differently, but in essence, the thing they all have in common is they're all laying out a path on how to find God, how to get to enlightenment or life or God. But the message of Jesus is the exact opposite. See, Jesus isn't teaching us how we can get to God. He's actually teaching us how God got to us. And so as you're wrestling with and beginning to process your own faith and scriptures and trying to make sense of whether or not Jesus was who he says he was. What's obvious from all the statistics is that most of us, most of the human race are far more comfortable with God than we are with Jesus. It's so much easier for most of us to just go, okay, yeah, like I, yes, I believe in God, but I'm just not sure I can leap from that place to believing in and following Jesus. But when you begin to read the life of Jesus, here, here's what you see, that if there is a God, he's relational and intentional, and, and life and the universe aren't random. They're not driven by math. They're driven by God's love. You were created for relationship with your creator. Then who Jesus was and the things that he said and did and the claims he made about himself actually make perfect sense. Because there's almost this sense that when we use the name God, we're using it in the context of us searching for God. But when we talk about Jesus, it's the name we use when we talk about how God came for us, is searching for us. I think when we talk about God, it's as if we're seeing the back of God's head, but when God turns around and when he looks at you and when he makes eye contact with you, you will know that his name is Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Later on in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this in verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. and You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my burden that I give you is light. So there's that, there's that word again, yoke. He's saying that because every rabbi had a yoke. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is like, I, I, I alone have unique insight into the way that life works, what it means to be human. And if you lean in and you listen and you live out what I'm saying to you, you will actually experience everything that your soul is after. I, I love how the message translation says it. These same verses, it says it this way. Jesus said, are you tired, worn out? Are you burned out on religion? then come to me, get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. If you walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it, you will learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn how to live freely and lightly. And the truth is, I mean, if we're being honest, isn't that we're all at, what we're all after? Isn't that what you want, right? Like feeling at home in your own skin, being at peace 
with God and the world. And not just being at peace with God, but having the peace of God. Experiencing the absence of anxiety, of striving, of the drive to achieve and prove and, and that, that your life is defined by the very next thing that you accomplish, by the size of the house you have or the car that's in your driveway or the number that's in your bank account. Isn't that what we all want is to believe in our core that nothing about you is broken or missing, that you are who God created you to be, that you are where you belong, living and doing the very best of what God has created you for. And knowing that no matter what happens to you, no matter what life throws at you, that there is unspeakable joy and peace and love that will follow you throughout your life. And in a very real sense, that moment in Matthew 5 on that mountainside, it's Jesus saying, look, if that's what you're after, if that's what you want, if you want to know what you were created for, if you want to know how life works, listen up because I'm about to tell you. One day as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach. And here's what I think. I, I think if we can begin even for a moment to start to understand the context of all the stuff that we've been talking about, you and I, like the crowd that day, that we will be in the next few weeks as we get into what he said, we will be on the edge of our seat, focused, open, concentrating, ready to learn, not wanting to miss anything that Jesus would say. And then Jesus starts to teach. And what does he say? You're gonna have to come back next week for the rest of the series because that's what we're gonna get into. Would you pray with me?